All right, what does it mean to be free? Well, Disney, um, in their song, in the song Let It Go, from the great movie Frozen, uh, has a little phrase in there just defining freedom. It says, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Hmm. Is that true? No. <laughs> no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I would venture a guess that most people actually do define freedom in that way. I would venture a guess that even within the church, we would define freedom in that way. When we hear the phrase from Jesus' lips, I, I have come to set you free, or who the Son sets free is free indeed, many would sit there and think, oh, no rules for me. I'm free. But that's not freedom. That's actually lawlessness. Lawlessness leads to slavery, and it ultimately leads to death. Rather, freedom um, is learning what it means to live the way God created us and designed us to live. It's learning how, it is learning how to live within the context of God's good boundaries. Now, we named this Bible study the law, of God, the law of Love because the law has been given by God out of His deep love for His people. It is also the law of love because God's people show their love for God by loving and obeying His law. So law, love is at the heart of the law. Love is underneath the law. Love holds the law together. And this week and next week, we are looking at specific situations of how the law of God is to be applied in the context of ancient Israel as they enter into their inheritance. And as you were studying this week, you may have wondered, what does this have to do with me? What do these laws have to do with us today in our cultural context? It's specifically for Israel. What is our relationship with these laws? Do they have any significance to us? And I would contend that they do. They have in important significance in our lives today, in our culture today. It is my hope and prayer that we will walk away from this study and then over the next few weeks knowing what that significance is. But I want to say and set, frame up, set up our study tonight with the truth that these laws are a reflection of the character of God. And while they apply in a specific context, the principles of the laws are carried forward into our current time today. So let's begin our study with a word of prayer and asking the Lord's help for it, with us. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks um, for each person that is in this room today, for those who are listening. Lord, we thank you for um, the desire that we all have um, to learn about you through the study of your word. We know that this desire is, comes from you. Um, and so, Lord, we ask for your blessing on our time together. We ask that you would um, work in our hearts, humble our hearts, open our minds so that we would understand, that we would be able to um, walk away from this study knowing you more deeply, knowing how we are to be changed. And Lord, I just pray for your blessing. I pray that you would give me um, calmness and, and peace of mind and clarity of mind and clarity of speech. And I pray all of this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. All right, we are looking at Deuteronomy 19 through 22. 
four chapters, 19 through 22, and we are going to fly through these chapters. I hope I don't lose you. We're going to go fa as fast as I, my tongue can talk. Um, I'm going to be doing some verses. I'm going to go through it and, and read through some of the verses, but also do a lot of summarizing. So this is the, these are the moments where I'm very grateful for our threefold approach to Bible study. I'm grateful that you guys are spending the week in the text, that you are familiar with the text. I'm grateful for the small groups when they gather together that they discuss that same text. I am convinced that your small group leaders answered every single question that you came to Bible study with tonight. So, it, you know, the pressure's off me right now. But if all you get is me, I'm sorry. <laughs> because we're, it's not going to be as full and as rich as it could be if you were spending the time in the text and in small groups. But, all right, God is calling Israel to be a holy people, to reflect his holiness in the darkness of the culture that they are about to enter into. Remember how we talked um, over the last couple of weeks about they have been um, declared holy by God. He physically separated them out from all the peoples in the world, and he declared them holy as he covenanted into relationship with them. And now, through his law, he is, he is forming in them and teaching them what it means to be holy, to, to live out the holiness that they already are. And so now we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of what this looks like in their context. This is written to Israel in a specific time and in a specific place, but it is for us as well. For we too live in a, a culture of death like they did. They were entering into a culture of death, um, and God's people were to be a reflection of the life-giving God that had save them by valuing life. They were, enter, they were to enter into this culture and into this area and value the dignity of human life by pursuing, pursuing the preservation of their own lives and the lives of those around them. Many of the laws that you see in our passage of Scripture today are either implicitly or explicitly centered around just that the preservation of life, of human life, and of, the, of dignity. So why does this matter so much to God? That he would spend so much time talking about the preservation of life. Because he is the author of life. God is the author of all life. He is the author of human life. And only he has the authority to take life. It matters also because God, man is made in the image of God. We are told in Genesis that God made them male and female, and he put his image on them. Human life is unique out of everything else that God created because it bears the image of God. The image of God is what makes us distinct from the rest of creation. But it also gives value to humans, and it is the basis for human dignity. All people, all people, hear me say this, all people, without exception, bear the image of God. Whether they're pre-born people, whether they're people who are unable to contribute to society for a variety of reasons, whether it's disabilities, whether it's mental disabilities, whether it's um, old age, all people, all people bear the image of God. Therefore, their life is to be preserved 
and they are to maintain, be given their dignity. Because God has placed such a high value on human life, to take a life is to seek to destroy the image of God in that person. You shall not murder are the words that came from God on Mount Sinai. And this is why the penalty is so severe. This is the word of the Lord in Genesis. He says, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. So the law says, do not murder. A life for a life is God's law. God so values his human creation that if that life is taken, if that image is snuffed out, he will demand a life for that. The law that says do not murder also requires God's people to preserve life, to preserve their own life and the life of others. Let's take a look at the first law on the cities of refuge and see how God begins to instruct his people in the preservation of life. Chapter 19, verse 1, the word of the Lord says, When the Lord your God cuts off the nations whose land, is, whose land the Lord your God is giving you, and you dispossess them and dwell in their cities and in their houses, you shall set apart three cities for yourselves in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. Remember, they have already set apart cities in the, the side of the Jordan before they entered into the land. There were three cities set apart in that they had already received their inheritance. And so when they cross over the Jordan River, they're, be, they're to right away begin to set up cities in that part of the land. It says in verse 3, You shall measure the distances and divide it into three parts, the area of the land that the Lord your God gives you as a possession, so that any manslayer can flee to them. This is the provision for the manslayer who by fleeing there may save his life. We're going to stop there. So we have a scenario. We're going to have the Lord has has designed within his law cities of refuge because within his law to murder or to kill somebody is to take a, is requiring a life from that person. Whoever takes a life, it is their life that is owed. This is the way the law is. This is what God has required. And yet we know, based upon the word of God, and we know based upon even our own lives, that things happen not intentionally, that there are deaths that happen accidentally. And so God is providing mercy for the one who has killed accidentally. And so this is called the manslayer. The manslayer is one who would kill somebody accidentally. And the manslayer, upon killing somebody accidentally, has the ability to run to one of those cities of refuge. And these cities of refuge are to be distributed evenly throughout the land. So it was never too far away. It was never too hard for him to get there. So the manslayer could run away from the avenger of blood. The, word, the avenger of blood is the nearest blood relative to the deceased. And it was his responsibility to avenge the blood of his loved one. Another word for the avenger of blood or another name that you might be familiar with is the kinsman redeemer. So the name for the avenger of blood is also the kinsman redeemer. And we see the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth with Boaz. He was her kinsman redeemer. So one side of what, what he does, that his responsibility within that family would have been to pursue justice for anybody who was killed um, that was a near relative to him. So God is establishing laws in order to preserve life. 
The blood of this man who has died is crying out for justice, but it was an accident. By rights, the avenger of blood was to see that justice was done and that the blood of this man was avenged. But suddenly, justice can turn into vengeance. Look at what verse 6 says. Lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long. So they're supposed to keep them close together and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. So God is not only protecting the manslayer, but he's also protecting the avenger of blood from perpetuating a crime, from, from taking vengeance, from killing the man, manslayer. So in order to protect both the manslayer and the avenger of blood, for wrongly killing yet another person, God has established these cities of refuge. They were to be havens of safety. So as the manslayer would run to the nearest city of refuge, he, when he arrived there, say he would be given safe haven. He would be given a fair and just trial. The priests and the religious leaders of that community were to hear his case and determine whether it was an accidental or an intentional killing. There's a distinction being made between the types of killing. The Ten Commandments specifically says, thou shalt not murder. But we see in our text that there are some killings that are permissive. There's the killing um, regarding capital punishment. God establishes capital punishment as justice, and it is to be um, enacted by the authorities that God has given. God has also made allowances for killing in war. And he's also shown mercy for those who would kill accidentally. It is the one who intentionally murders with hatred in his heart that will reap or bear the responsibility or the, the uh, life for an, a life. So as the manslayer is in the nearest city of refuge and he, he, it's determined that the killing was accidental, as long as he stays within that city, he will be safe from the avenger of blood. However, if it was deemed to be murder, intentional killing because of hatred in his heart, he would be given to the avenger of blood so that he may die. Verse 13 says, Your eye shall not pity him, but you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from Israel so that it may be well with you. I see God's goodness so clearly in the provision of these cities of refuge. We can see how clearly God values life protecting from unnecessary bloodshed, and yet also providing justice to be served. But in these cities of refuge, we're also given a glimpse of Jesus, who is for us our city of refuge. We run to him, and we are safe. When we are found in him, we find safe haven from the judgment and condemnation of the law. Praise God for this picture that we see of Jesus. Let's move on to um, verse 14. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set, in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. All right, so in this context, in, in their cultural context, it is, um, there is an inextricable relationship between the land and their life. There, it's inextricable. 
they that's where they get their food that's where they make a living that's their life and we see so much in our, the book of Deuteronomy about the preservation of the land and about making sure the land stays within the family and it's because the loss of land can mean potentially for someone the loss of their life especially for those who are most vulnerable for the poor in the land it means the loss of their future so to move the neighbor's landmark would be to take the life and dignity away from another. And this was not to be done by the people of God. The people of God were to seek to preserve their neighbor as well. They were to look after their neighbor just as they would look after themselves and preserve their own life and preserve their own land. Let's continue on. Verse 15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. So you can't just have one person accuse a person. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Verse 16, if a malicious witness arise to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in the office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So shall you purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So you, we see within the law these um, the laws are there to be a deterrent for people, right? You make an example. This is the law, and somebody breaks the law, and that becomes a when the judgment that comes upon that person is meant to be a deterrent for the rest of the people. You can see how important it is for um, this piece of the law to be in the law, for there to be true witnesses and not false witnesses, and to have that highlighted so faithfully. Deuteronomy 16.20 says, Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live. Without true justice, people die. If somebody bears false witness against somebody, it could mean their death, according to the law. So it's so important on an individual level, but also corporately as a nation, that they understand that they were to be a people of truthfulness, to bear true witness. And so the punishment for bearing false witnesses, whatever they, that other person was going to get, that person would get. Now I know as I read through this, and I'm sure you did as well this week, I'm sure you could not help but, as you were reading through this, think about the trial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The rulers of the Jews knew this law very well, right? They knew the law. They studied the law. They learned the law. They taught the law. They, they supposedly loved the law. And yet, they did the very thing that the law told them not to do. They brought against Jesus two to three false witnesses. And ultimately, we know the story that that cost Jesus his life. But praise be to God for taking what others meant for evil and bringing about our good. For in his unjust trial and unjust death, we who deserved that death instead receive life. 
Today, we can bring forward this same truth today, that we are to be a people of truth. We are to be um, speaking truth and not proclaiming false witness or bearing false witness against anybody. Jesus is actually pulling from this truth in Matthew 18 when he teaches about church discipline. He says, you know, when somebody sins or offends you, go to him. If he does not repent, take one to two people with you. It's on the basis of two to three witnesses that a person is judged. And and in this process of um, two to three witnesses, they're seeking the repentance of the person that is in sin. If there is no repentance, then they will be expelled or purged from the, the people of God. This law is as applicable today as it was then, to bear false witness, whether in a court of law or in the court of public opinion, is a serious sin. Let's continue on. We're in chapter 20. War is a second type of killing that has, is permissive. But even in war, God's people are called to be a holy people. Look at verse 1. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and shall say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Now, let's stop right there. I want us to understand that Israel's context is unique. The war that Moses is talking about is called the conquest of Canaan. And it is the only time God ordered Israel to go in and devote people to destruction. It is the only context, it is the only time that God did this for them or any time in history. It is the singular, unique moment in history, and the purpose of the conquest of Canaan was to fulfill God's word and his promise to Abraham, one, two, it was to fulfill God's promised judgment on that land. The sin of the people of Canaan, we must understand, had reached its full. It had started as a seed, and it had grown, and it had grown, and it had grown, and until it had flowered fully. God had provided opportunities for repentance. For 400 years, he left his own people in slavery in Egypt, waiting for for the people of Canaan to repent, leaving that door open. And the time for that had come to an end because their sin had fully developed. What was happening in in there was a culture of death. Idolatry was rampant sexual immorality, every kind of sexual perversion that you can think of, rape, incest, homosexuality, gang rape, offering children as burnt offerings were a normal, everyday part of their cultural context. And God said, enough. And so he sent his people to bring his judgment. This is not normative, but we can still learn lessons from this. First, I want to point out to you in the text that the first part of, of this, these um, 
laws about war had a spiritual nature. They don't just run into battle. They're not just running in and beginning to just fight all of the cities. First, a priest comes out and talks to them. There's a spiritual piece to this. The priest comes out and reminds them of these truths. He he reminds them of who God is. He reminds them of God's power. He is the God who single-handedly rescued you out of Egypt. He is the God who single-handedly took down Pharaoh and his entire army, barely lifting a finger to do so. And this God who rescued you and saved you is with you. This God who rescued you and saved you is the one fighting for you. And this God who rescued you and saved you is the one who is going to give them the victory. The conquest of Canaan is not about them. It's God's deal. It's not them. They're they're being called to not be afraid. They're being called to not be afraid when they see these great armies and great weapons that they have. Instead, they are to fix their eyes on God, on their God, on the one who had rescued them and saved them. He is the God who was faithful then, and he remains faithful today, and he said he would be with them. He would fight for them, and he would give them the victory. And if he said it, he will do it. To further make this point that it was God and that it was God who was fighting this victory, the next person to come out was an officer. And he offered exemptions for the men to go home. So the first exemption is if you build a house but haven't lived in it, go home. Lest you die and not ever be able to live in your house. If you plant a vineyard and haven't enjoyed its fruit, go home. Now, I want you to know that to plant a vineyard was a five-year process before you could enjoy its fruit. The first three years, there was no produce. The fourth year, all the produce would be given wholly to God as a tithe. And so finally, in the fifth year, you could eat and enjoy the fruit of the vineyard. So this is a five-year exemption if you just planted your vineyard. And the third exemption was if you were betrothed but have not yet married, go home. These are not accidental. These are intentional exemptions. God is giving them this land so that they can build houses, so that they can plant vineyards, so that they can marry and have children, so that they can flourish as a people. And if all the men go out to war and get killed, none of those things will happen. And so he's saying, go home, build your house. And he's whittling down the army, whittling down the provisions. The fourth um, exemption that they had is if you didn't fit into those first three categories, but you're still a little bit nervous about the whole idea of going into battle, you can stay home. I'm amazed that anybody was left, actually. (laughs) And this is all okay, because it's God who is the one who gives the victory. It's not the people. It's not their strength. It's not their resources. It's not their numbers. It's God and God alone who gives the victory. And this is a lesson that you and I need to bring forward into our context today. While we are not fighting a physical war, we are fighting a spiritual war against the world, against our flesh, and against the devil. We are in a battle. We're fighting our own indwelling sin. It's a fight to remain faithful 
to remain pure, to be holy people. It's a fight to proclaim the gospel message in our cultural context without fear and boldly, to follow Jesus' command to make disciples of every nation. These are fights. This is a fight. This is hard. And guess what? We don't have what it takes. You're not enough. I'm not the Bible study lady that tells you, you've got what it takes, girl. You are enough. You're not. You're not. But God is. And that should set you free. That should set, set you free to be faithful and to fight because you're not enough, but He is enough. And He has given you your, His Spirit. He has indwelt you with His Spirit. And He will give you the strength and He will give you the wisdom and He will give you what you need in order to accomplish what He has called you to do. We don't have what it takes. And when we focus on us, we have the wrong focus. And that's when fear comes in. But when we focus on God, the one who had redeemed us and called us out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous life, then we have the right focus. And then we can do what he has called us to do. Now let's continue on. We're gonna look, I'm going to summarize their strategy. First, we talked about the, the whittling down of the armies and the spiritual nature of this and that God was the one that was going to give a victory. Well, now God gives them strategy. And there's two different kinds of groups, groupings of cities. We've got the cities that are far off, meaning they're not a part of the land of the Canaan. And to those cities, they were to first offer a peace treaty, a suzerain vassal treaty of peace. This phraseology should be quite familiar to all of us. We've been hearing it all the way through the book of Deuteronomy, have we not? This is the treaty that the Lord has entered into with Israel themselves. He was their suzerain. He was their sovereign. And they were the, his vassals. So the people of Israel had a good understanding of what that was supposed to look like. They had the best understanding of what this kind of a treaty was supposed to look like better than any other nation because they had a good and gracious and kind sovereign. And so now what he's doing is he's commissioning them to offer the same terms to these cities. Israel would be the sovereign, and the people of the cities would be the vassals. Now remember that these people were to be a holy people, right? Holy unto the Lord. They were to reflect God to the nations around them. So what kind of suzerain, what kind of so sovereigns would they be if they were obedient to God? They would be good. They would be gracious to their servants, right? The, the people would actually benefit well if they did exactly what God called them to do because the people of these foreign, faraway cities would be brought in near to the house of God, near to the presence of God as part of the people of God and enjoying the blessings of God. It's actually quite a beautiful picture. Let's move on. So they were offered first the, the treaty but if they did not accept the treaty, then the city was to be under siege. When God gave them the victory, he said that then the men were to be killed and the women, children, and all the property could be taken in as vassals. Now, there's some distinctions about how things would have done normally in that cultural context. First, cities didn't offer peace at the beginning. That was just unheard of. Second, there was not to be any wholesale destruction. God is very detailed. Even in verses 19 through 20, he curbs the destruction of trees. This may seem a bit odd to us. Why would God put the thing in about the trees? Don't destroy all the trees. 
But he's teaching his people how to be different, even in this detail. The trees could, should be destroyed with purpose and not indiscriminately. You could cut them for food or for building purposes, but not just to be destructive and destroy everything. So that was the strategy for the cities that were far. The strategy for the cities that was near was a little bit different. The cities that were near were cities that inhabited the peoples of Canaan. They listed it in our text. They um, are the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Elsewhere, we know that the Girgashites were also a part of this. And these cities were devoted to complete destruction. Remember, again, as judgment. Now, there are some theologians who believe that the peace offering was also to be offered to the cities that were near, but the distinction would have been that if they refused it, the entire city would have been devoted to destruction instead of just the men. I'm not sure the, what the truth is on that, but that is just some of what the theologians do believe. But the rejection of the terms, they are to be devoted to destruction. Men, women, children, anything that breathes was to be devoted to destruction because the Lord had commanded it, because God was bringing judgment on sin, and finally, because God was protecting the people, his people. Look at verse 18. It says that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that you have done for their gods, and so you sin against the Lord your God. God is preserving his people and he's seeking and pursuing life for his own people. Because if they follow in the way of the Canaanites and the people of the land, they eventually would become like the Canaanites and the people of the land. They would eventually destroy themselves and be exiled out of, out of the land. So God is loving his people and, and trying to, and preserving them and preserving their purity and preserving their life through this judgment. And while we may not understand the ins and outs of God's commands sometimes, what we can know is that his commands are for the good of his people. Then and today, we can see his goodness, his protection of his people. He knows the weakness of humanity, that they are drawn so perpetually into idolatry. And yet he invites his people to trust him and to rest in his good boundaries. Let's continue on and pick up our text in Deuteronomy chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1 says, If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed them, then the elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. Now again, keeping in mind what we've learned already about the image of God and a life for a life, we have a situation, a scenario, where there's a, a body that is found out in the field and nobody knows who did it. But yet his blood is crying out for justice and they don't know what to do. And so God gives them and tells them exactly what they are to do. They are to measure the distance in whichever city is closest to the body. Those elders, those judges um, will take responsibility for the guilt of the death of this man. It is going to be on that city and on those elders. And in order for them to be free from guilt, they would offer an atonement sacrifices to purge the guilt of innocent blood from their midst. We are over and over again reminded that atonement must be made for the taking of life. We are reminded of the value God has placed on human life 
because humans bear his image. In a culture where life is not valued at all, this still speaks to us throughout the ages and should shape us as believers to be holy and distinct from the culture of death in which we live. All right, let's keep going. Um, we're going to look at um, chapter 21 and verse 10, and we're going to tackle these, this marrying of the female captives and the inheritance of the first rights of the firstborn. Now, I'm just going to summarize them. I'm not going to read the text for you, but I'm going to talk about first the marrying of the female captives. Um, the first thing I want to say before we get started on these two sections is sometimes we get tempted to look at these passages of Scripture and we, we get a little judgmental, right? We, we, we kind of get up on our like moral high horse and we look down on these passages of Scripture and think that we make all sorts of judgments on the people and we make all sorts of judgments on Scripture and we make all sorts of judgments on God. And I would like to say that we as a society are not more moral than they were. We're just different. Our immorality has a different face on it. It may be dressed up a little bit better, but it's still immoral. And so we need to have uh, be a little bit humble when we approach these difficult texts. Let's look at the first scenario about marrying a female captive. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among them the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife, you may do so, he says. God is not commanding or sanctioning the practice of marrying female captives. Rather, he is seeking to regulate and transform a current evil practice in the land. What is the current evil practice in the land? Current evil practice in that land at that time would have been during war, they would rape and pillage all the women. And I think if you would travel to different parts of the, country, of the world today, that practice is still in play. When tribes and, and warring tribes and factions are fighting each other in different parts of our world, what they do is they rape the women and kill the men. And God is saying, my people will have no parts in that kind of behavior. And so, rather, if a woman caught the eye of a soldier, he's not to act on his animal instinct and impulses and ravage and rape her, but rather, if he sees her as beautiful, a Jewish man or the Israelite man could bring her home to his house. God shows, I hope you can see, great concern for this woman. He is protecting her life. He is protecting her dignity because she, too, is an image bearer. He is to give her a month before she is taken as his, as his wife. What is the purpose of this month? She is transferring. This month is a time of transferring from a foreign community to the family of Israel. This month is given to her. Um, so that she could um, grieve for her family, grieve for her loss. So there's, there's this space given. And I would venture a guess that space, that 30 days, also would calm the man down a little bit. He might change his mind in that time period. Instead of acting out of his passions, there's some time frame here for him. So she's to be given this time. And in this month, in this household, after that month, she, if he still desires to, he is free to marry her. If for some reason or another the man 
no longer desired her, she was free to go wherever she wanted. And I hope you can see how God is actively protecting the women, the dignity and the life of women in this law. Similarly, we're given another scenario that highlights an evil practice in the day, and that evil practice is that of polygamy. Again, this law is not an endorsement of polygamy. Scripture is pretty clear on what its view of marriage is. Genesis 1 and 2 are really clear. Marriage is between one man and one woman for life. Jesus reiterates this view in his earthly ministry by going back and teaching from Genesis 1 and 2. The apostles do the same thing. Scripture also teaches against polygamy in indirect ways, in highlighting the dysfunction and disastrous relationship results of such relationships. So in this law, once again, God is, is seeking to restore the life of, and dignity of those who are unloved. We have a scenario. If a, um, if a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved one have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, when he assigns his possessions, he is supposed to give to the firstborn person, son what is due him, his firstborn rights, whether he's from the unloved wife or the loved wife. Justice and only justice shall you pursue. Justice is not showing partiality based upon somebody's, whether you like them or not. They had, he had rights under the law, and he was to follow through those lights regardless of his, the, the man's affections, where his affections lay. Well, this principle, I hope you can see, can cl clearly comes forward into our lives today. We are to be a people that operates within our families, within our churches, and within our communities, guided by God's justice, not our justice, but God's justice, and by impartiality towards one another. James 2, 1 says, My brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. And that is all of life. We are to sh called to show no partiality, for God is not partial. We are going to skip over Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 22, but I'm going to revisit it at the end. So let's look down, if you will, with me um, in your Bibles to chapter 22. And we're going to try to run through all of these various laws as quickly as we can. Chapter 22, verse 1 says, You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. Verses 1 through 4 are talking about your neighbor's property, and your neighbor has lost his property. So the law has both prohibitions, thou shalt not, and also thou shalt, you shall do something. And this is a, that you shall do something. This law counters the natural human tendency to not help others, to kind of pretend we don't see it. He says, you sh do not ignore them. That word for ignore literally means to hide oneself. Basically, to you know, hide from, from responsibility. So it's our natural human tendency to hide ourselves from responsibility, to take no notice of, of what is going on around that would require action on our part. Rather than ignoring what's going on around you, the people of God are to be looking out for and taking responsibility to help their neighbors to help others. 
Um, that is the major thrust of this law. And as you can imagine, that carries forward to today. We are called to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, to look out for the good of our neighbors. Let's continue on. Look down at verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. An abomination is something that is greatly disliked or abhorred, regarded with disgust. It is a strong word that reveals a strong reaction to something. In Scripture, the word abomination is used in connection with things that are evil. Idolatry, homosexuality, lying, murder, deceit. Um, Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 says, These six things the Lord hates, seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Because God made man in his image, male and female. And those he made male are to be men in the way they live, and those he made female are to be female in the way he, they, they live. The confusing and the blending and the removal of, of the gender distinction is a rebellion against the Creator God. And frankly, Scripture tells us he hates it. And here's the thing that we need to understand, for this is quite the conversation in our culture today. God is the unchanging God. If something was an abomination all the way back here in Deuteronomy, it remains an abomination today in 2023. The grace of Jesus and the salvation he brings does not change the things that God hates. However, it does empower us to repent and turn from doing those things. His grace does not make sin okay. His grace changes, empowers us to turn from the sin we love and begin to hate it. And to turn to God and love and obey him. To love what he loves and to hate what he hates. We can be confident in our cultural context of what God's view is of the conversation that is going on today. God loves his female female image bearers. He loves his male image bearers. He made them purposeful. They glorify him in their masculinity and in their femininity. And as the people of God, let us reflect his glory in the way that we live our lives as female image bearers and not blend the genders Let's be different and distinct from the world around us. All right, let's continue on. Verse 6, if you come across a bird's nest in any tree or on the ground with the young ones or eggs and the mother sitting on the young or on the eggs, you shall not take the mother with the young. You shall let the mother go, but the young you may take for yourselves, that it may go well with you and you may live long. What, is the, what in the world is that about? So if you kill the mama along with the babies, you will eventually run out of food. This is long-term planning here. Pretty basic. Don't exchange long-term profits for immediate gain. Think ahead. 
This is about the preservation of life and the preservation of your food. Verse 8, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. This is pretty self-explanatory. The roofs of the house were used for many purposes. They slept on it. They did chores up there. They entertained on that. And common sense would say that you would want to put a little fence around that. I think we would do the same thing today if we were having parties, dinner parties on our roof. Let's continue on. Verse 9, you shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seeds, lest the whole yield be forfeited, the crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. Verse 10, you shall not plow with an ox, a clean animal, and a donkey together, an unclean animal. So it's saying don't mix a clean with an unclean animal. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. So we have this, this picture of these three um, things that they were not supposed to mix together. Now, possibly some of these were peg things that pagans did, things, the, the planting, the way they planted. Honestly, commentaries, they're not just, they're just not sure. Perhaps God is teaching the people through the seemingly insignificant things, bigger theological truths about blending the distinctions that God created in, in his creation. But I think the New Testament sheds a little light on this passage. In 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The principal thing that God does not want us to do is to be unequally yoked as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ with unbelievers. For we are a holy people separate unto God. Verse 12, you shall make tassels on the four corners of the garments with which you cover yourself. The reason for this law is found in Numbers 15, 37 through 44. The tassels were to serve as a continuous, visible reminder to the people of the law of God and their responsibility to obey. It would ever be before them. They would always have these tassels reminding them of God's law, reminding them of, of their responsibility to be obedient to it. Kind of like a wedding ring serves as a visible reminder of the vow, the covenant that you made before God and others to exclusively love, to be faithful to this person until death do you part. These tassels served as a reminder of the marriage between God and his people. It's a reminder of the call to spiritual purity, spiritual fidelity, faithfulness. You see, disobedience to the law is to commit spiritual adultery. And I think this is why the rest of the chapter is speaking to the sin of sexual immorality. There's a connection between the spiritual and the physical. And as you spend time studying verses 13 through 30, of chapter 22, you should come away understanding the significance of sexual, sexual purity in the eyes of God. We made some observation. There were some distinctions made in the severity of the punishment that would be required for sexual impurity, right? Adultery was punishable by death, both parties. The rape of a married or betrothed woman was punishable by death for the man. However, let's talk for just a moment about this, this situation, the scenario of a rape of an unmarried woman. This was less severe for the man. He was not to be put to death. However, he was to pay the bride price for the woman and marry her. 
This law was intended to be a deterrent. Again, something to stop somebody from acting out of their own passions. Now, I am sure that um, it's hard for me, like fathers then are still fathers and they would be fathers today. And I don't know of any father would force his daughter who had been raped to marry her rapist. And yet this young man would be required to pay the bride price, whether he married her or not. And additionally on that, if he did marry her, he would never be allowed to divorce her. They were permitted to divorce in their cultural context for various reasons, but he would not have that option. So that would, should give him pause, slow him down a little bit, to act as a deterrent, to not act on his own impulses and on his own passions in that moment. There is no record in the history of Israel that a woman was ever made to marry her rapist, that this was ever carried out. So this law is there to act as a deterrent for the people of Israel. This is a big deal. Sexual purity, marriage is a big deal in the eyes of God. And it's significant because God created it. God created sex to be enjoyed within the context of marriage between one man and between one woman. It's a good gift from a good God. And it's part of that marriage covenant. It is intended for pleasure. It is intended for procreation. And it is intended to display the glory of God and of the gospel. God uses marriage language to talk of his relationship with his people. And the unity of marriage, which is symbolized by sex, pictures the intimacy and union of our relationship with God. It's a big deal to God because he loves his people and he wants them to flourish. To abuse sex and marriage is to destroy his image bearers. To distort sex and marriage is to distort God himself and the covenant relationship he has with his people. Sex before marriage, rape, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, polygamy, incense, uncovering your father's nakedness, as it says in the text, meaning sleeping with your father's wife or your stepmother. These are all perversions and or distortions of God's design for marriage and for sex. God calls his people to holy sexuality, to be pure sexually and to be pure spiritually. These are difficult passages of scripture, are they not? They're hard. They're hard to read. They're hard to, they're hard to understand at times. They're passages that we wrestle with because what we're looking at when we look at these passages of scripture, what we're looking at is the holiness of God. We're seeing his holiness. We're seeing God's view of sin sin that we are all guilty of and that's why it's so hard for us to sit here and read these passages of scriptures and to read that the wages of sin is death these are difficult passages because we are beginning to recognize and realize the severity of sin in the eyes of a holy god let's conclude our time together, and go back into um, chapter, is it 21, verse 18? Chapter 21, verse 18 says, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son 
who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of his city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of his city, this is our son, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is, a, is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So we have this picture of a stubborn and rebellious son. We're not talking about toddlers here. We're talking about a grown son, son who has repeatedly walked in continued hardness and rebellion. And he is to be stoned to death so that the evil would be purged from the midst of a people that is holy to the Lord. So that no seed of rebellion would remain in their land, in their community. And we're told in the text that all of Israel shall hear and shall fear. What is it that Israel is called to hear? What, they're, what are they supposed to hear here? It reminds me of the phrase that we so often hear coming out of Jesus' mouth in his teachings and in the book of Hebrews. He said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Israel is being called to hear something, something very important. They're called to hear in order to pay attention. What is that? It's that they are the stubborn and rebellious son. Israel themselves is the stubborn and rebellious son who has continued from the moment they met God to rebel against God their father. They continue to ignore the instructions of his word. Over and over again, they do not obey God's voice. It is they who should be taken outside of the city and stoned so that the evil would be purged from the midst. Over and over in grace and mercy, God throughout the Old Testament continually, patiently calls this rebellious son Israel to repent. He does it through prophets. He does it through the priesthood. He does it through kings until he finally sent his only begotten son. Unlike the rebellious son Israel, this son was obedient. He loved his father with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He obeyed the commandments of the Lord his God perfectly. He, pursue, he pursued and preserved life. He restored the dignity of others. He didn't hide himself, but rather actively pursued helping others in their distress. He pursued justice and only justice. And in the face of false witnesses, he was condemned as a sinner, as a rebellious son, as a drunkard and a glutton. Condemned, taken out of the city and hung on a tree. A man cursed by God for crimes worthy of death. The Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, 13, and 14 reveals to us the significance of this particular passage about a man hanging on a tree. Galatians 3 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanging on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. As ugly and as uncomfortable as these passages are, they are so good. 
They are so, so good. They reveal to us that we are the rebellious son. They reveal to us that we deserve death. They reveal to us what we would never be able to see or understand about our sins, how ugly and sin is. The law of God is the law of love. It shows us God. It shows us what goodness, justice, purity is, and it exposes our sin. Over and over again, when we read the words, purge this evil from the land, we should see what desperate condition we are in. We are set free from this condition, from the condemnation of the law, because Jesus took the curse for us, because Jesus was hung on a tree. He bore that curse of the law for us. And the judgment that we deserve for our failure to love God and his word went on him. And we are set free from judgment, from the condemnation of the law to the law, which now trains us in holiness. Titus 2.11 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us. The grace of God is a person. It's Jesus. He has appeared and he brings salvation for all people. And he is now training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the beauty of it. We thank you for the goodness of it. We thank you for the difficulty of it and for the way that it exposes the sinfulness of our own hearts and our desperate need for a savior. We are so thankful to you that you have provided a savior for us in the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his grace and that he appeared giving us salvation. We thank you that he is now training us in righteousness through your word, through Deuteronomy, so that we would be free from being lawless people, instead being a holy people unto you. I pray for your blessing upon us as we go out today, and I pray that we would continue to submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.